Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome everyone, my name is Gonzalo Herrero, I'm Architecture Programme Curator here at the Royal Academy. It is a great pleasure to welcome you this evening. Tonight's lecture is part of our new series, Technology is the Answer, but what was the question? We have asked different practitioners and theorists to raise questions about uh, how technology can challenge, transform, and contribute to architecture, cities, and society. Responding to our call, uh, our lecturer tonight, Matthias Kohler, had proposed the question, are we approaching a digital building culture, as the title for his talk tonight. As you probably all know, Gramacho Kohler Research is a film founded by Matthias Kohler and Fabio Gramacho, a practice recognized as a global leader in digital design and fabrication in architecture, in particular for their experimental and revolutionary use of robotics in their designs. The practice uh, was established uh, at the ETH in Zurich in 2005, becoming then uh, the world's first architectural robotic laboratory. Since then, uh, they have developed a wide number of stunning installations that have been part of numerous exhibitions all over the world and include institutions such as the Venice Architecture Biennale, Storefront Gallery for Art and Architecture in New York, the FRAC uh, Center uh, Orleans, the Palais de Tokyo, and the Center Pompidou, um, both in Paris, and many others. They are also currently building their first larger-scale project, a three-story uh, house called the DIFAC House, a project that Matthias will explain later. Uh, the event will start with a, lect with a lecture from Matthias, uh, lasting around one hour, uh, followed by some time for questions from the floor, and also a drink reception in the adjacent room. Just a quick note to let you know that, uh, about our coming events as part of this series. On 19th of February, we have a lecture by MIT professor Carlo Ratti on the Internet of Things and how urban sensors are going to transform our understanding of cities. This event will be followed on 19th of March by a debate entitled Can We Live on Mars? Uh, in which we will explore uh, the question that extraterrestrial living will raise for architecture and humanity. Before handing over to our speaker, I would like to thank uh, the Embassy of Switzerland in the UK uh, for their kind support of tonight's event. And also thanks to the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and our lead sponsor, Taki Ceramics, for their continued support of the architecture program at the Royal Academy. And now, without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Matthias Koller. Yes, good evening. Pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to talk a bit of works uh, of Gramatia Kohler Architects and Gramatia Kohler Research. You're going to see we have basically two strands of works, but we are still only two individuals and not split in our head. We try to bring these things uh, together. I'm very pleased to be here uh, and to share a bit um, around this question, if we move towards a digital building culture, I believe we do so. And I think a digital building culture is more than just about construction and the way we build, but it's understanding the way we build as a, as a way of how we design uh, our future environment and how society will live and understand and benefit from our built environment. So I'm gonna go a bit back in time. You're gonna see works which are very old, 15 years old, in today's speed, this is prehistoric almost. It's important for me to show you a bit uh, where the motivation uh, comes from, uh, so that you understand where we might be going to. So just to introduce my alter ego, Fabio Gramazio, 
on uh, the right-hand side, and Matthias Kohler on the left. And let me start with some work from our uh, architecture practice. And actually, let me start with experiments. And you're going to see I start to talk with experiments, and I'm going to end the talk with experiments. These are experiments from the office side, and I'm going to end with experiments from the research side. In 2002, we wrote this small program called the M-Table. It was actually a design of a table which, is, which you, can design, you can design on a mobile phone. Here you see this was the first programmable mobile phone, so this was before the launch of the iPhone. And people with their thumb could actually deform a surface and choose the length, width, and uh, height of a table. And when they were done with their design, they could send it uh, to a server. Now, this deformation with your thumb would actually deform the surface up to the point where it would go through the upper side of this table. You're going to see this in a second. But what's being sent is this small code here. This code contains all the information necessary to fabricate the table according to your pressure of your thumb. Basically, it, it's a number of pressure points and, and how much <coughs> you pressed. And that's then going to be re regenerated in higher resolution to become the information for a CNC mill, which, which translates what you've been pressing with your finger onto the surface of this timber table. And wherever you pressed, too much. Basically, this, this, this surface would tress, uh, go through, through the, the undersurface of, of uh, this table and create a hole. So the feature of this table is that it becomes a table with holes. The soft surface is on the underneath of the table, so it's the hidden gem, if you may say so, of this table. And the top, for functional reason, is still, still flat. But you, get, you see that it gets these very sharp uh, edges also on the side, which come from the deformation by the touch of your finger. And so it, it gets these very unique, let's say, features, which come from the production process and from this design process. Of course, there is something ironic also. I mean, who wants a table with holes? And it was not so easy to convince a number of clients to actually build some of these tables. But we look at it as a kind of negative decoration. Instead of putting more and more stuff and flower vases, etc., on your table, why not just take something away and open other uh, possibilities? For example, I have one of these tables at home, and the kids like to come up in the holes, grab something from the table. So it turns out that something you know, somewhat ironic is also actually sometimes very, very functional uh, if you let it happen. But what's most important is maybe beyond um, the functionality of the table. It's the fact that all these tables here are a design family. So if we as, let's say, authors, as designers, design an algorithm for others to participate uh, with, still all these tables share the same characteristics, despite the fact that we as designers have not designed the form. And classically, you would say a designer nowadays, or, or let's say maybe 15 years ago when this project was made, classically you would say designer needs to design the form of a design object. And I think this shows how 
with algorithmic design, we might enter an area where design as uh, a different characteristic than just designing forms, and that these characteristics can also be coded, actually, in algorithms, and the ideas and aspirations of a project can be part of uh, such a code. Another early project was called the Interference Cube, and I put it in this presentation because it just got a revival very recently, which you're going to see. So that's just a concrete cube, uh, which weighs, I think, two tons, or maybe even a bit more. Um, with five closed sides and one uh, open side. The interior of the cube is a surface which is, again, algorithmically described. We actually create a volumetric field. It's very much like I talk to you here. Sound waves go out in the space, or from, at least from the speakers, out in the space. So the entire space is actually full of information. We just don't see it. So here in the computer, we use something similar, a volumetric field. And then wherever this cube cuts this field, we record this information and transfer this information on the inner sides of the cubes. You see these five sides. And this information is recorded on small uh, oscillations. And these oscillations are then also milled, only 8 millimeter of depth into wooden panels. Now each of these five sides is just cast uh, in one standard cast, where each time we change this inlay, the, which was CNC milled. So each panel gets unique, but the fabrication system is very standardized. <clears throat> and what happens then is that this very fi fine resolution, this digital characteristic, gets directly transferred into the physical imprint uh, on the concrete. And I think what's very nice here is that if, you, if people see this surface, they don't really know what it is. It could be something natural, but it's too perfect to be natural. So it kind of, it's a certain ambivalence which is raised. So people immediately want to kind of touch it. And I think, well, isn't it beautiful if Working with the digital, suddenly you get something which people want to touch, to understand. So how far is the digital uh, from the physical? Could the digital actually enrich uh, the physical? So this is how the cube then looked like. So it's a contrast between this very crude, super standardized uh, exterior and this fine interior. And then there is this interesting feature that, of course, all the ripples in the cube, they align to one another. Why? Because it's cut out of a volumetric field which is consistent. So it's also a principle, and in theory you could ornament an entire building, an entire space with this principle without ever having any rupture of the information. So I think it's still, maybe some of you want to <coughs> use this in the architecture practice, I think it's uh, quite beautiful because it tells something about the pattern and it tells something about the geometry that the pattern uh, is cut with. We then did a photographic work that is uh, work done by the photographer Roman Keller, a friend of ours. He kind of collaged this, let's say, outside standard view and opposed this with an inside view where we just said, well, what if we just contrast this with the human and, and bring this topic of touch uh, to the forefront? So these are all my former friends and who <laughs> 
whoever wants to become my friend now, <laughs> pay attention what you get yourself into. I, of course, needed to be in back of the camera, so, <laughs> so uh, with help from this. And this is how we did it, because we only had one cube. So the photographer, he actually changed perspective, and we changed actors uh, in the cube uh, to make this, let's say, the multiplication, the virtual multiplication possible. We speculated a bit more, and sorry for the bad resolution, but it's a long time ago. We, we then took those photographs and arranged them spatially, again in the same volumetric pattern that actually created the interior um, surface. So here you see kind of a spatialization of this. You see the aspirations that if we could, we would like to build high-rises, etc., uh, with these possibilities, but of course we have not achieved this at least not till now, let's see. So, now recently, actually uh, this summer, we, this cube uh, got uh, invited to be um, on display. It's part of the Verbier 3D Foundation, which has a sculpture park on the Verbier Alps. So actually, um, basically we called up um, the manufacturer of the cube and said, do you still have this cube in your, in your yard somewhere? And actually, they, uh, he still had it. So luckily, uh, what is it, 14 years after it was produced, we, we could still have it. We drove it up uh, to the Alps, and that's where it now sits. And uh, it's quite a crude uh, contrast, basically a pixel or a voxel in the landscape. This is how it looks. This is how it looks from afar. So it's, it's really a basic unit, a uh, space unit. And just uh, the former weekend, we had the official opening of the cube. All the, peop all the people wanted to go inside. This was uh, quite, quite nice to see. So actually, it, has, it can take ten, at least 10 people, uh, which I was not aware of <laughs> uh, to that date. And so let's see how it's going to be used in the future. So it's, I think it's going to be permanent there, if I understand this correctly. What's also nice to see is now how now this artificial pattern suddenly becomes overlaid with natural uh, formations. So I think in the sense of, of seeing how, how these histories between something which is synthetically generated and something which is naturally informed kind of converge, this is going to be very exciting for us to see. We did another cube just uh, the year after the interference cube. The reason was that we handed in the interference cube for the Swiss Art Awards, but didn't get it. And we were a bit annoyed because we liked, <laughs> we, we liked the project. So we said in the next year, we're just going to again enter a project. And this time, it's called Byte Cube. The reason why we didn't get it, the jury said, well, this is uh, a too expensive piece for an art award. You're basically uh, you, you're bragging with, your, with, with the, uh, uh, your possibilities to actually build something so physically uh, permanent, uh, while it should rather be just on contents. And we said, well, for us for, as architects, uh, it's, it's normal that we build something, and it's normal that we try to get sponsors uh, that do something like this. But as a counter proposal, we then said, well, OK, let's do the byte cube. So it's exactly the same measures, another cube. But this time, the information is only light. 
And basically, if you uh, know what a byte is, a byte is the basic uh, computational unit that a computer has, and it has eight bits. And eight bits can be zero or one, so very, very basic. And what we did is we just counted through the byte from zero to 255, which is all bits on. Now, interestingly enough, a cube has eight uh, corners, so we just spatialized this. And whenever, so this is just basically counting through all possible light states of the corners of the cube. And whenever we reached something which is an identifiable architectural configuration, like a plane, then we paused for a small while, and then we continued counting. So it's quite a conceptual project on spatializing information, and then we won the Swiss Art Awards. So that's when we stopped with cubes. This obsession with light continued for a while. We had the chance to build our largest work probably ever, which was 1.1 kilometer long, the Christmas lighting at the prestigious uh, Shoppingstrasse in Zurich, the Bahnhofstrasse. And this was quite a radical project, basically just one central line going down the Bahnhofstrasse, accentuating the, these slight bends that the streets uh, make. And the project was twofold. One was this physical installation, which was quite demanding. It's not so easy to uh, get these lighting elements up there, and actually also the fabrication of these lighting elements was very special. But the second part was also to design the behavior in time of these lights. So how would these lights evolve uh, <coughs> over time? And here just a, a small impression uh, from, from the opening. Okay, so basically you see that um, each of these tubes uh, had uh, 32 pixels, so it's a very low resolution uh, interface, and we programmed a kind of atmospheric pattern which could change all the time during the Christmas time and in an unforeseeable manner. So even we could not know how exactly it would look like at a specific uh, uh, instance, but we would know the characteristics of the patterns. Uh, the problem was people were shocked with this because it didn't correspond to what they thought uh, Christmas was. And so, in that sense, it was the last Christmas illumination that we've been doing in the office. But it was not so bad because I think it was interesting in the sense that you learn for whom you want to work. And to work for everyone, I think, is a very demanding job, which apparently maybe we're not best suited for, in the sense that, you know, if, if you really need to hit the Christmas feeling on, on the spot, you need to be very good uh, in kind of, let's say, atmospheric design and understanding what the people want. I think we're more interested in looking a bit into the future, speculating in what the people might want <laughs> in the future, and therefore we're talking to special audiences, and that's a bit what we learned through the project, as hard as it uh, might seem. But still, a third of the people actually loved the project, and two-thirds, according to the surveys, did not like it. And so then after three years, the uh, UBS, the Swiss bank, decided to uh, put mo money on the table to have a new one. But it was up for five years. So. And the pe some people uh, uh, still love it a lot. And <coughs> Good. Then we did other projects, like, for example, this house, private house in the Riedikon, where 
the entire house is actually wheeled uh, in wooden slats, but these slats are thinned out. You see it slightly on the, here on the right-hand side. Thinned out in front of the windows by a CNC mill in a way that if you're inside this house, the, the view to the outside actually spectacularly opens and um, you have a contrasting experience to when you look at this house from the outside where it looks completely closed and, and uh, not accessible. So when you're in this house, you have no shades, no blinds, nothing. You're always in contact with nature because your eye focuses on the outside. You don't notice after a while that there are even slats, but when you're outside, you actually, you're, you're protected from the views. And that's a very interesting, uh, let's say, uh, principle that we've been working with uh, quite a bit. There's an impression here. You see how delicate these slats get visually and how we get something like a, a different material by informing them through digital technologies. We've done other projects and I'm not going to go into detail here. Uh, here, for example, assembling an unconventional brick facade uh, or this inner facade, a collaboration with Bert and the Platz's architects uh, for the Swiss Federal Court in Venizona. So we like to work with patterns and see how they contribute to the atmospheres of spaces and surprisingly they do very strongly uh, on multiple levels. In this project, it's not only a visual, it's not only a visual pattern, but it's also a pattern that actually diffuses sound in particular ways and does sound reflections. It's for a, an auditorium space where they do research on empirical acoustics. So you can start to work with digital technologies, with surfaces in a way, or with materials in a way, that surfaces become deep. That surfaces have all kinds of features, all kinds of transparencies, all kinds of, um, let's say, effects on the space. And I think going, yeah, starting from, from the uh, M table, to the interference cube. To this you sense how these characteristics can be diverse and how different architects and different uh, situations uh, result in different um, solutions. Now the biggest building that we could realize so far is quite a radical one. It's called the Nest Building. Um, it's a building from the Swiss Material Science Laboratories. Uh, they are the clients, and it's like a laboratory that is turned inside out. So classically, you would have a laboratory building that's maybe, you know, like a box or something. And then in the inside, you have all the flexibility uh, to do your uh, lab experiments. Here, flexibility is demanded on the outside. On these platforms, you can build other buildings. It's a kind of a plug-in building. And these different buildings, they contain research on new energy techniques, new construction techniques, etc. And they're being tested in use. So this becomes then a guest house for people that work on this campus. And it's a very nice program that as architects you're used to plan something which is not finished. You're asked to plan something which will constantly change. It has no facade. 
and it was also very complex to actually solve. I'm just going to give you an impression a bit from the inside of the building. So the actual facade, the, the permanent side of this building is in the inside. We organized everything around a pretty archaic core from concrete. So we don't have really experiments here. This is really all very solid. It's on the one hand side load bearing, on the other hand side it contains all the evacuation uh, routes for people in case of fires from these modules. It contains all the media, etc. So it's actually a, quite a machine, but it's organi organized around this beautiful space which has public programs alongside with it. And so you can walk up uh, this inter internal courtyard to access these different experiments. Good, let me switch over to research. Um, in 2005, so that's now you need to shift back in time again a bit to what I've been showing you, uh, we started this small robotic uh, lab at ETH Zurich. This was the first laboratory that worked with architectural design and robotic fabrication in an architectural setting. So not as construction automation, uh, not with the construction automation mission, but with the question, how do we change design if these new technologies are really uh, getting into uh, reality? This was the first lab, very simple, just a, a standard uh, robot and, and a glass cell. We wanted to open it. So, so no more workshop atmosphere in the sense that robots, etc., are in the cellar. We want to have this uh, fully visible and we still uh, continue to uh, pursue this quest to bring the, the robots out uh, uh, into the world. The reason why we bought the robot is quite straightforward. We wanted to go into additive fabrication because if you look at the architecture around you, it's usually added from different building parts, different elements, from materials. It's hardly ever subtracted, as I've been showing you in the first projects, because you couldn't do it at the building scale. It would be very wasteful, very time-consuming. Um, but in 2005, there was simply nothing which would add architecture, right? So we said, well, let's go, let's go to this generic device, so just an arm, and let's see how it can start to add things. Some of the first works which we've been doing was with bricks and uh, some of you probably know this project, or most of you maybe are familiar with our work, the Weinrich Gantenbein. This was our first, let's say, challenge to do something at the full building scale. It's a 400 square meter facade uh, from slightly rotated bricks. And the way that we designed this facade, you see these kind of oversized grapes, abstracted grapes, uh, was simply by filling a container which represented uh, this building as a kind of virtual basket with these abstracted grapes. Only three sizes of grapes, three meters down to, I think, one meter, if I recall correctly. And you, think, you see how topics from the interference cube in some way uh, come back. So it's a, a space-filling ornament, if you uh, wish to say so. But we then looked at this basket from the four facade sites and transferred 
the view that we got into this basket onto the individual rotations of the stones. And so, in some sense, you get then this situation that you have this one sphere, of course, also appearing on this side, because it's the same sphere. So a strange kind of consistency or doubling up, uh, which is not what you usually do if you wrap uh, ornamental pictures around the building. Good, and this is how the facade was produced. So the robot takes a brick, he puts on glue ropes, eccentric, so that you have maximum um, capacity in terms of bending forces, and he puts it exactly where this brick overlaps the two bricks below. And now since every brick can be rotated up to 17 degrees in one or the other direction, this is easy for the robot to calculate and to do, but imagine if you would need to do this by hand to put the glue exactly at the right position and make sure that the, the, the glue doesn't uh, spill over on the sides. This is something which is easy for the robot to calculate, but the human would not want to build this facade, although he theoretically could do it. So this is uh, something where we clearly see uh, that there are differences between what the robot can easily do and why such a facade is easy to be done with the robot or with the human that is augmented by digital devices. Um, but you wouldn't want to design this facade if there was not this capacity. What we like about this here is that from far, well, you have this basket of these grapes, you have a sign, you have, you have a pictorial effect, but from close, the brick still has a very strong presence. And we think this is very important that we don't lose the presence of the material in architecture and we sometimes regret if a building just becomes you know, an image. So in that sense, that's what we like. The physical, physicality of the material expresses itself. Uh, that's usually what we coin with the term uh, digital materiality. So the digital and the physical or the, the, the originating material is co-present in the works. This is an inside view, and here again an impression from the building. Then we recently had the possibility to build a building for our own institute. Our own institute means the institute that our professorship belongs to, so these are seven professorships. It's called the Institute for Technology and Architecture. This is how the building looks like. And this building was co-designed by multiple stakeholders, the different professorships. And our professorship was responsible to design and conceive the roof of this building and a lab uh, in the lower floors of this building. This is what the roof looks like. And again, it's an assembled roof from parts. So we talk about how prefabrication shifts uh, the reality of making architecture. If you look at the plan, although we never designed the building in the plan, uh, this is how it looks like. I think what's very nice is you, you sense that there is something soft, almost textile, in this plan. And this comes uh, because of the adaptive nature of these digital technologies. So here, again, this design was not drawn, this was programmed. And by programming, you, you decide certain features, for example, that you want to have it uh, close to the columns, you want uh, this gap minimal, then you open up. Wherever you need uh, a shaft for air uh, evacuation, you need to go around it, etc. So it becomes this adaptive system, uh, which at the same time is thought constructively 
and functional and aesthetic. And you parallel these tracks, in, uh, you, you develop these tracks in parallel as opposed to developing them sequentially when the problem arises. So you don't do a design first, you say, wow, this is great, perfect. And then you get into all the battles with all the engineers that supposedly should make it buildable. No, you try to sit together as early as possible and you, you jointly try to develop uh, an adaptive system which is your design. I'm not going to go into the detail of how it's built up. It's a pretty straightforward, simple structure. But a tricky detail is how these different slats are actually joined. So we have 50,000 slats and we have almost a million of nails which hold this roof together. And here again you see it's quite tricky because these nails actually not only hit one layer but also shouldn't hit the other nail in the next layer. So you have a tricky dependency which again you wouldn't want to solve by hand. Basically you couldn't solve it by hand. But a computer can solve it for you. And then with certain optimizations you get this roof which has a certain behavior, again, from the constructive nature, from the joining up to the sprinkles, etc. And by minimizing the amount of materials, although it's not uh, using the minimal amount of timber, don't get me wrong, uh, you, you get to a, an efficient construction system, which then can then be built as follows. So here, on a blank ground, the, the robot lays some first slats, the, the human uh, adds, the foreworker adds some, uh, some holders, and then the robot just sequentially builds up um, this timber beam. Here you see this detail of this nailing, again CNC controlled, apparently no regularity, no pattern that we can understand, but this is calculated in a way that you always fit the right number of nails in each node. And if the num number of nails don't fit, you increase the slat size until it fits. So you try to fuse all this information into the fabrication time. This is then one beam produced on its side. And here I think it's a nice view where you see how these informations are brought in. Each beam slightly twists. No slat is the same or it would be by accident if it was the same, because it doesn't matter if they're the same. Only the system needs to be consistent. And here again, view of the final building, but it's not only looking nice when it's empty, it's actually a really nice place to work. Um, so up here are our PhD working areas, and down here are the professorships, and I welcome you to come by if ever you uh, would like to see it. Now downstairs, there is this lab, called the Robotic Fabrication Laboratory, and that's a bit about the future um, of how we imagine prefabrication. It's an empty space with the idea that in this empty room you make whatever you want to do, manually, if you want, but whenever you want a robot, well, you just call it and it's there to help you. So basically, we fuse the information that uh, the digital uh, has together with uh, human craftsmanship, and we try to develop hybrid scenarios uh, for man-machine collaboration. With the idea to build complex structures such as these, which is collaboratively built up by two robots, and doesn't need any scaffolding, doesn't need any measurement. The robots know how to hold 
the, the different sticks, and through that can build up that triangulated structure with a very special node. But I'm not going to go uh, into the detail here. In this lab, also part of this project is built, and that's now the third building project that I show you from the research side. It's called the DFAB House. That's an ongoing work. So I cannot present you nice pictures and videos of how it will look like. I'll show you a bit of messy stuff of how it looks while we're doing uh, things. But I think that's what uh, research also all about. Now this project happens in the framework of the National Center of Competence uh, and on Digital Fabrication. That's a, a Swiss initiative with many, many researchers. So now there is about, I think it's about 18 professorships involved about 70 people, about 35 PhD researchers, 10 postdocs, etc. So it's really a big collaborative effort. The idea behind this program was to go beyond what, let's say, architects can just do on their own, but really to start expanding the collaboration network to roboticists, <coughs> to material scientists, to structural engineers, etc., and see how we all together can think about uh, digital building culture. And after a bit of difficulty starting it, uh, I must say it's, it has a lot of drive and works really nicely. So a new research culture starts to come. The students breathe this kind of interdisciplinary discourse uh, and the, the boundaries between the disciplines to some degrees uh, start to, let's say, inform one another. I would not want to say blur because the disciplines still hold their core competences. Now, of these about 70 people, the people that you see on here are actually responsible for the project that I'm going to show you. So I'm talking now as representative for uh, all these people. The DFAB house is going to be built on Nest. So what you saw before as an empty platform is now the playground for this small building to happen. It's a three-story building. I show you plans only because it's easier to tell you about the program. So in the ground floor, it has an open ground floor plan organized around this S-shaped wall, which is the basic, let's say, zoning of the space uh, with some living room and dining and kitchen. And in the upper floors, you have four guest apartments, which you see here. They're all a bit different, um, which sits on, on this uh, S-shaped wall. This is roughly what it's going to look like, but I don't like to show rendering, so it might look somewhat alike, but probably also going to look a little bit different. Now, what is special is that we try to build a house which incorporates research. So we take research straight out of the lab and try to build a house from it. Namely, we try to build all the load-bearing elements of that house using digital fabrication techniques, which are still in research. So it's a push let's say, you know, initiatives to build a 3D printed house. I think I've seen many announcements of many 3D printed houses, many first 3D printed houses yet. This is a bit, takes a bit of a different uh, take. We don't want one technology which does it all because I think architecture is never about just having one technology which does it all. It would, it would in my view, be the end of architecture. I think what we're looking for is different technologies which do different things which are redefined through the digital, um, which change the way that we build and change the way that we design and bring those together in what yeah, might become an inhabitable building. So 
let me walk you through first through these two projects, Smart Dynamic Casting, Smart Slab, and then to the spatial uh, timber structure. So I told you before, this building rests on this S-shaped wall. Um, this wall was designed with multiple criteria, but basically um, the <coughs> PhD students that designed the wall or co-designed the wall, they um, made a design tool which they could adapt to fabrication constraints and structural constraints. From this design tool, this mesh is generated and this mesh is being built, will be built by a robotic system. The idea of this mesh is that it can be filled with concrete directly, so you don't need any formwork for this concrete wall to be built. So this mesh is both the structural reinforcement and the formwork. It's a principle uh, which we called uh, mesh mold. But it's only possible through this stakeholder, that's the IF, that's the in-situ fabricator, it's the first generation um, mobile robot that can go on building site, and may I say the inventor of it sits in the room, Jonas Buchli, uh, back there. So um, his group, uh, and our group, kind of co-developed this robot, which can be packed into a container and be driven in there, brought onto a building site, and then is directly controlled out of the CAD environment. What's important is that there is no division, actually, between the software in which I designed this wall and the software from which I built this wall. It's the same. So maybe you think of, of it, or at least those of you that are more on the economy side of things, uh, think what that means if the design software and the fabrication software is the same. It kind of disrupts a bit the way on how we think uh, how buildings are uh, planned and through what processes they go. So from this software, the robot is controlled, and that's the only part that's already done from the building, so I can show you this movie. So along a vertical wire, which is put by a human, the robot welds piece by piece small connecting wires. They all serve structural purposes. In this kind of man-machine collaboration, this mesh is being built. And while the robot welds these pieces, the three-dimensional information is brought into the mesh. So as you can see, this mesh is doubly curved. And that's happening through the robot through its articulation in space. The robot senses these small tags on the ground to locate itself. The robot is being repositioned multiple times. And it can also read uh, these elements which it, which it welds so that it can correct itself. And like this, the robot achieved to build this wall. This is not all the people that merit uh, to be mentioned here sitting on the wall, but this is, a, let's say, core team building the wall. And you see again what I talked before about, or uh, called digital materiality, <laughs> that even in this metal mesh, you have this expression of something which is clearly from the digital, while you have the presence of the physicality of the simple steel mesh, and they both uh, come together. So we're actually a bit, or I'm a bit unhappy that this is now being filled with concrete, because it looks quite beautiful as is, but 
the final purpose is, of course, that it's being filled. A second technique that also works with concrete is called smart dynamic casting. Smart dynamic casting is a slip casting technique where we can change the form of the slip cast while we cast. Basically, we're in control of the material delivery to such a degree that the material can support, is strong enough to support additional material which comes on top, but is weak enough that it can still be formed. So you don't need a formwork to build these facade mullions. That's what we decided to use it for. So this column here, which is slipply, uh, freshly slipped, is still somewhat in a wet state. It's then being hung in, in this rack where it uh, slowly hardens. And it results in a very beautiful column which did also not need a formwork to be produced. Now each of these columns is different. You see here, it's an older prototype which, which has a bit uh, wider belly than this one. Uh, these, uh, so depending on the wind loads, the, the shape of these elements can differ, but that's depending on the applications. And in this case, we use these different uh, reinforcements. Now if you compare this to 3D printing of concrete, Maybe you note that these techniques, both mesh mold and smart dynamic casting, both incorporate reinforcements. And for all of you that know a bit structures of architecture, you actually need reinforcements, or most of the time you need reinforcements in reinforced concrete, right? So um, we are working on techniques which try to bring in these uh, reinforcements uh, into um, digital fabrication of concrete. Now, the next project is also on concrete, the Smart Slab. That's a project by another group. That's a group of Benjamin Dillenburger. So this is not our work. This is a 3D printed formwork with a very high articulation. This will become the slab on which other two stories uh, will be sitting. And it sits on top of the mesh mold wall. You can see how these forms actually tightly interact and come together. And it was also built up in a way that whenever we would change something of this wall design, the design of the smart slab would automatically adapt. So we kind of transferred this information uh, automatically between the groups. So we had two adaptive systems. Now, the degree of resolution is astonishing because this is a full 3D print of a formwork. This is how it's then assembled. I'm not going to go into details, but I can show you last, <coughs> last images just from the workshop. So this was, uh, I think, one and a half weeks ago. This is the formwork which is assembled. You see all these incredible details straight out of the printer. Each of these ribs is going to be uh, unique. And here you see this is just from last Friday, the first taking off of the first mold. And you see how this very thin uh, shell here uh, is being articulated. Of course, this is done for aesthetic reason on the one side, but on the other hand side, and you can nicely see it here, it's kind of also a material optimization of the concrete which is happening here. So wherever there are ribs, these are then formed into these, um, um, <coughs> these more, let's say, voluptuous uh, lower surface. But it's cast, uh, let's say, this is... Um, uh, this is shot created, and then this is cast directly on top in the same formwork. 
So what I've been showing you now is three techniques how to build with concrete in the future. And here you see in the early mock-up, which we produced last year, how these come together, mesh mode wall, these smart dynamic casting mullions, and the smart slab. And you get the sense that we try to build more efficiently with concrete, more ecologically, and also more versatile, basically getting rid, if we can, of formwork, or minimize formwork, or also having completely new architectural features possible <coughs> with concrete. So that's going to be the focus of the lower story, how to build with concrete in the future. And then the upper story, we have two stories from timber. I'm just going to show this very quickly. Um, the timber, these timber slats, they all react on where they meet with the ribs of the smart slab. So whenever something of the design of the smart slab changes, which might have changed because something of the design of the mesh mode wall changes, this percolates up and this model also automatically adapts. Then we create this timber frame and this is now being built in the robotic fabrication laboratory. And the process is similar to what you've been seeing in the, in the roof of our institute building, but here the cuts are three-dimensional. So the saw cuts in varied angles and now two robots collaboratively position these elements. So you have the sequences that one robot puts an element in the, in the angle or in the corner. And then the second robot brings these side elements. Like this, you have a stable corner. Then this is continued in the other corners. Then the top beam is put. Oh, we see this slowly completing. And then these, these intermediate beams are rotated in. Why do I indicate this to you? It means we need to learn how to handle the robots in space, how to make sure that they don't collide, etc. But also we need to think about the constructive system that works with the robotic assembly. So the way that we assembled with timber till now maybe changes. And the typology of how a timber, timber house looks might change. Now these uh, units are self-stiffening, so in that sense we don't need plates to stiffen these volumetric units. They can be in complex shapes. And therefore the, we developed a translucent facade, which will come on top of it. You will have light through the timber frame. So therefore also the image of what is a timber frame building will start to change by using robotic technologies, or at least it does in our project. So again, I don't know how exactly it's going to look like. We're going to find out, and uh, the opening is scheduled for June. Keep the fingers crossed that uh, we're going to achieve it. Good. So I've been walking you through where we push research to the edge to build real buildings. This is very important to get everyone on board in, in the research teams, that this is really about changing the way that we build and changing the way that we design for good. So it's not just an academic playground. Uh, it's also very important to get industry on board, to talk with industry about this and actually go through the difficult phases of transferring this, this uh, research. But to finish, I would like to go back a bit to the fun of research. Uh, the relation of man, machine, but also the relation of material and machine. So I'm going to end with a number of experiments. First one um, 
called aerial constructions, where we said, well, it's good. We have robots which we can use in the factory. We have robots that maybe, and we've just shown this, we can bring on the construction side, but how might the robots look like in the future? Well, actually, we don't know. Might they be able to be flying robots? So we started with this quest quite some years ago, actually, I think 2011. And this is an early try which we did together with the roboticist Raffaello D'Andreo, who's a kind of master of these drones. This kind of looked promising. So <laughs> then we said, okay, could we also actually bring two rods together? This is what we do with the spatial assembly, for example, of the timber frame structures. And if we could do this and keep one robot flying, we could actually start to assemble an entire three-dimensional structure. <laughs> so it turned into, <laughs> turned into Star Wars battle. And then we, re we realized, at least for the given state of technology, well, maybe maybe it's not the best to want to assemble rigid elements, you know, and you have, you have a low uh, precision of the quadcopters, which accentuates, you know, to the ends, etc. We said, this is not the right thing. What, what, what would quadcopters actually want to build? And then we said, well, that's what they would like to build. <laughs> of course, quadcopters would like to build with ropes. Because quadcopters, in difference to um, arms, they can fly through structures, like, for example, this scaffold, or through other threads. They can weave. They can do things other robots can't do. And the threads are light enough that the quadcopters can carry them. They have a low volume, but a high structural strength. And that's how we then decided to use them for building tensile structures. I'm not gonna go into the details, but one, <coughs> one remark. It's not so trivial to design this. What does it mean for a designer? How can you design in time with changing material behavior? These are gonna be very interesting questions. So the entire design principles might not work as we as we know them uh, in the future. And so for us, this is a very exciting, this is actually how we designed it. So we had to preview how the um, changes in the structure would be in order to ensure that the robots can fly through, etc. So it opens a lot of questions. But actually the project which we did before this project was called Flight Assembled Architecture. This was the very first time we used this flying machine, again with the same robotics partner. Here they were flying around foam bricks to build a six meter high tower, which you can see here, from these bricks. Six meter is a height which you can't access without scaffold, etc. So we thought this is interesting. Let's do something where at least you couldn't do it easily by hand. And in effect, no, uh, no human ever touched this tower. It was literally just the drones. But we wanted to go a little bit further. We said, well, let's think about what this might do to architecture. And in a speculation which was real, but not real in the sense that it could be done by drones, we kind of thought of these modules as one to 100 scale module models of actually three-story um, 
building blocks. So each of those elements would be three-story high, could be full three-story apartment, could be offices, etc. Could also be supermarket, could be cinema, maybe just one uh, open space, etc. So basically large generic blocks which could be outbuilt in different ways. And so we conceived this city for 30,000 inhabitants that was supposed to be built close to Paris. As you can imagine, it's not built yet. Um, as a speculative project, the idea was that this city can be built up maybe with the use of flying machines, other devices. It's built by a small factory on site, module by module, ideally using local resources to be discussed. And then it's a fully self-contained city in the sense that it's energy autark, so it, uses, it produces its own energy, uses its own energy. It's fully pedestrian. And since the site that we positioned it at is just above a TGV station in the middle of nowhere in France, which got built for political reasons, it's, this city is only one hour away from Paris. So whenever you want to see, see a real city or what the city used to be, you go into uh, the TGV and you're, you're in Paris in an hour and you can get out. Also, conceptually, the city can be built back because this is a city as an object. It's not a palimpsest of a continuous evolution. It's actually an object. So this object, if for whatever reason, after 60 years, one thinks, I think the city lived its purpose, it can be built back in the same way. So that was the thoughts behind the project. But the fun, of course, was building it at model scale. Now, the drop that you've been hearing is the most precise way to position one of these elements. Because if you f hover down slowly, you create a lot of turbulences and then the object is positioned not as precisely. But if you hover above about half a meter and then you drop, you get the most precise result. And I like this because you see how this tower kind of magically builds up, like from ghost, ghost hand. Because in the fast speed you don't see the machines. You see how material almost ghostly goes to its location. And exactly this relation, material and machine, we questioned with this experiment. I'm going to speed up a bit so that you're going to be out soon. Um, basically, we said, well, is it true that the machine needs to bring material to its final place? <laughs> Could maybe material simply be thrown to its final destination. So the, these were first attempts in a project called remote material deposition. And you know, to some degree, it was kind of successful. It looked a bit like, like we could erect something, which is always quite important for architects, so that you can get to something uh, wall-like or, yeah. Otherwise, we would do landscape architecture. And and then we said, well, can we actually scale this? Could we do it in a larger space? So we took uh, real earthen material. We had this space um, at Sittewerk St. Gallen, that's an art foundation, which we could use. And then we started to throw clay over distance. So here's the preparation of the projectiles. And basically we use let's say what military has done for decades or centuries, now for civilian 
purposes. So we shoot, we calculate the ballistic curves, and then we need to scan the result. <laughs> because of course we don't know exactly how the formation is going to look like and how the deformation of these parts are. So we shoot, and after a round of shooting, we look again at the results. And we could achieve heights of 2 meters 30, which is pretty substantial. In some, in some, some ways, if you, if, you, if you have a wall in the direction of the shooting, the wall was actually thin, maybe 8 to 12 centimeters. Very thin, very slender, very controlled. In the cross direction, you get a more blurred wall, right? Because you have some roll-off effects. You get the deeper wall and the more blurred wall. So you have all these kind of different behaviors in this wall. But this we achieved to build in a building area of 10 by 10 meters. And our footprint of the machine was only one square meter. So I think it's actually it's, it's quite an interesting approach. And it awaits, uh, let's say, further explorations. And this is how it looks if you are sitting on such a wall <laughs> and are not expecting anything and then suddenly <laughs> construction continues. <laughs> Good. A small interception. We did this very small project called Robotic Cosmogony where we had this very tiny particle which is below one gram of mass, just suspended in front of a particular end effector, which produces ultrasonic waves. So this particle just sits in front of this robot, just hovers above it, can be handed from one robot to another by this little device here. It's just a very poetic interpretation of maybe what I've shown you in the beginning with the interference cube, with these volumetric patterns. So what this device is doing is putting pressure in an articulated way in, 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 in the air. And the air is looked at as a real, tangible, physical media and not as an invisible void. And so it's just a note to say that the the physics of things and the digital control of these physics are really merging and maybe we need to think of entirely new ways on how to conceive reality and how to build reality. Now, the last project is a bit more tangible. It's called Rock Print and it's a collaboration with the MIT with the group of Skylar Tibbetts. And we said, well, can we actually build with material which is found everywhere on the planet, which is abundant, which is not harming the planet in any way if we build with it. Can we build with rocks? Can we build with rocks in a way that we assemble a structure like on the left and actually, ideally, by loading it, it is stable. And if we take off the loads, namely when we don't want the building anymore, it just liquefies again and we get, again, the rubble the rocks that we had before. That was the conceptual thought. Now, it turned out it doesn't work so simple. Uh, we did a number of tests, but there is a trick. We can build like this if we use rocks and strings. And in this project, we built up a structure of four meter height, 
by layers of rocks and string. So here you see a layer of rock, and you see a, this layer of string in a particular form here laid by the robot. Now wherever rock and string come together, the rock is held back by the string, and the string is held back by the rock. And in that way, physically, they block one another to fall out. Now if we open this box, you see how material falls off. Actually, more material would fall off, but since this is a lightweight aggregate, because the floor load was limited in the Chicago um, biennial, these aggregates had a tendency to stick. But slowly you can unearth this structure, which consists only of string and rock, so there is no iron in it, there is no binder, there is no cementitious material whatsoever. So it's just loose matter. <coughs> you see how beautiful the surface is, right? So there's an articulation of the material itself in weird ways sometimes, right? <laughs> and of course, I mean, the people were all, always very afraid. Let's say if you talk, if you tell them, well, this is only rocks and gravel, uh, rocks and strings, sorry, they say, well, I don't believe you. But then if you walk up and touch it and stuff falls off, you know, <laughs> take one or two steps back. And it's interesting to see, right? It's, it's something which you can't believe, although the principle is so simple. But the most beautiful thing, of course, is once the exhibition is over, you just pull out the string. So here you see Petrus, the project leader, with a simple spool. He should have worn a helmet, though. <laughs> Pulling out the string, this turns into performance. Hopefully someone took his high-speed uh, camera with him, as a project partner. Here we see the final undoing of the sculpture into what it originally was. So basically a pile of rubble and a spool of string. And wouldn't it be beautiful if architecture in the digital age, going towards a digital building culture <coughs> and a digital design culture, could actually start to think or to be as radically ecological as this project maybe shows in an exemplary way. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mattia. We have a question from the audience, so yeah. Would you like to say a few words about the role of numerical optimization in your work? It's a good question. Basically, we're not very optimization-driven uh, in the sense that, let's say, we're usually looking for conceptual points which are very interesting to explore. And if optimization is a strong part to the conception of uh, a structure, an experiment, a building, then we're very interested. And we're also, let's say, keen on exploring it but we are not automatically optimizing. Uh, we're not optimization experts, and we don't tackle a problem from it. If we were optimization experts, we would probably, let's put it the other way, probably we're quite lazy sometimes. And the laziness brings us, it's not true, but uh, the laziness <laughs> brings us to, to look for simple solutions which work, and optimization uh, only use optimization when it's conceptually really relevant. But you're clearly using a static structural analysis to test, to computationally test the stability of the structures you design. Yes, of course. Okay. And that's a big battlefield, actually, because we would like to use it in a way where the, where the stat <coughs> statical analysis is, 
is directly engaged in the, uh, in the computational design. Factually, with every project that we do, there is so many barriers to actually do it. I hope you, you can do it all the time, but I must say it's, very, it's a very hard thing to do. I see many frontiers, often from structural engineers, but also from other sides, to actually really make it one loop. Well, one of the big questions right now uh, for society is like this uh, fear uh, of robots taking our jobs. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is going to be like uh, an immediate future or is just a, there is going to be just a change, a switch in the way like the jobs are being redeveloped? And well, the politically correct answer, I would say, is, is to say that jobs will change, like they always change with, with all, let's say, changes of technology and societal changes. And I think, let's say, if you look at the construction side, it's maybe also nice that some jobs change. I think if you think of, of the youth and, and think of who really wants to work on a construction site. It's maybe nice if they can start to work on a construction site with their hands, but also with, their, with certain apps, you know, if this becomes a seamless environment. So this would be, let's say, a slightly positivist uh, answer uh, to this. On the other hand, I think it's, yeah, there's going to be quite a substantial uh, disruption, possibly. I think not so much in architecture and construction because it's a very slowly moving field. Probably in other disciplines uh, it's going to be more violent. So I think it's a social challenge and I think uh, I try to show with our work that we're not interested in a single-minded uh, view in the sense that robots are the bright future but really see how new co collaborative models between humans and robots uh, are possible. Um. Yeah, the, the second question, it will be uh, more related about the economics like, of uh, right now, like producing mm -hmm. with robots is something that is like quite expensive and like we've seen in, in the sort of project that you are running, can only be developed by some very like wealthy developers that can support like this kind of very experimental project. What do you, when do you think it will be arrived like the moment when this can be like democratized and, and uh, it turns into like a more popular like building technique? Well, I can't predict the future, but I mean, I, I would say, I think in prefabrication, it's already happening. It's slow, slow because building industry is slow, uh, but in principle, I think it's already starting. It's happening. You also see quite a number of spin, uh, startups and spin-offs popping out that want to move into the construction industry. I think it's a matter of time. There will be failures. There will be, you know, mishappenings, etc. It's an early phase in a certain sense, but I think it's it's going to happen pretty fast. On-site is a bit uh, more tricky field. Jonas could tell you more more about it probably. On-site robotics is is highly challenging. I would say it's probably maybe five years for pilot applications, maybe ten years till we see it a bit more regularly. That's my gut feeling. Um, yeah, thank you for amazing lecture. I just wanted to ask uh, about the collaboration, uh, collaboration, robot-robot collaboration, and collaboration of them with a the human. Mm. Uh, I'm kind of aware that you use uh, some kind of machine learning. Does it actually affect the way how this system works, how this collaboration between two machines and then the human behaves? Actually, we're not using machine learning, but it's good that you're... <laughs> yeah, because, of course, I mean, it's, it's the hype of the day, right? So, I mean, of course, everyone seeing a robot and seeing these things happening, you think it's all... I mean, we have the question of optimization, we have the question of machine learning. I think we're very interested in the techniques, and actually we're also starting a project on it. But 
as I said, we're not so much, let's say we're more conceptually driven than solution driven. But I think machine learning, I'm not sure if you're, please uh, tell, me, tell me if I, if, if I hit your point of interest, but I think machine learning will be uh, quite, uh, will quite change the relations, um, how we work with the machines and maybe not so much how they work amongst themselves, but a little bit also in the sense of optimization. But I think our, uh, let's say, if we manage, again, conceptually to put the right questions to the forefront that machine learning uh, could be used to tackle, uh, then the interface with the humans could change quite drastically. Right now, it's basically programming code and sending it to the robot, reading out sensors, and uh, it's, it's quite straightforward work. But uh, I think machine learning could be quite a driver uh, to changes in the field. But I have not seen so many so intelligent questions asked to machine learning in that field. So that's a great research area for anyone who wants to go at it. Matthias, thank you for an amazing... I mean, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, this guy is working in architecture, but actually he's an artist. Uh, you know, your, your, your attitude to, in a way, the openness of the questions that you're asking. But I just wanted to ask you about time, because it seemed like time was really the, the, prin the, the principal material. Mm. And the fact that you, I mean, I wanted to just ask you, how long did it take to make the curved wall that supports your three-tiered structure? To make the wall was pretty straightforward. It took a month. So it's not, let's say, it's not economic at the current state. So it would need to be, we calculated it would need to be about a good 10, maybe to 20-fold times faster. But it's feasible. I mean, if let's say, if industry goes into it. I mean, this is still research, right? Brought onto building sites. So I think we're, let's say, we have a gap, but it's not so massive. It's quite tangible. The tricky thing is till you get there. I mean, this is four, almost five years of research um, of about, I would say, 14 people, probably. Mm. Not, not from the beginning on. The beginning was one, then two, da, da. But basically, it's, it's quite substantial efforts until you get to such an integration. But maybe just one small remark. Time is also very interesting design-wise. I think the other answer to your question would be, how do we design processes instead of designing static artifacts? That would be another conceptually. Yeah, because everything, all of the things that you showed us have a choreographic mm. element, which suggests actually growth patterns, mm. and growth patterns that mirror, if you like, um, biology or, or botanical systems. And I just... the. The, 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 the future thought for me is, well, this, this is about the development of human behaviors mm. that can actually adapt to the kind of time uh, dimension that, that these kinds of structures need. And that there has to be then an acceptance of precariousness, an acceptance of feedback. Mm. Um, but I, I th thought the, you know, the, the parabolic kind of uh, delivery thing which then feeds back how the structure is behaving as a result of this in a way temporal aggregation mm -hmm. i mean it's just a totally new way of thinking about the structures that surround us and our habitat sorry this has ceased to be a question no, uh, <laughs> i like your reading <laughs>
Thank you very much for the most interesting presentation. But coming back to the simplest form, it was the um, shuttering. You said several times that shuttering wasn't required, but on, on the photographs of this curved wall, I couldn't see, I didn't see any shuttering, but I didn't actually see any concrete, or I saw the yeah. finished form. And I can't see how they, what kept the, the molten con concrete, or the liquid concrete, in place. Yeah, sorry for keeping you short on information with the 200 slides. I was worried <laughs> <laughs> to go <laughs> into more detail. So basically what happens is that, let's say, the aggregate sizes of the concrete and the sizes of this mesh are attuned in a way that if you fill in the concrete from the top or from the side, we have different filling techniques. Basically the concrete clocks in this structure and it can clock, uh, basically it can keep the entire hydrostatic pressure inside the mesh. So imagine if you think of concrete as a liquid, you know, you have a tremendous pressure, right? But this pressure um, basically goes onto the mesh at each, inch, each instance and doesn't uh, go all the way down. And so actually it just stays in and then you, so you fill it, it stays in and believe me, it, it does. Uh, we just haven't done it on this bigger, but we have done plenty of smaller samples. And then you must imagine you have this mesh with some concrete which kind of protrudes a little bit through the mesh, uh, kind of, uh, 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 I'm missing the word, kind of folds out a little bit. And then you let it dry, and then in the second pass, you add a finishing layer on it. That's how it works. So you don't have the... the Hi. Um, just coming back to the machine learning question, mm. um, do you think that um, with the scope of work that you're involved with, um, the, the part that where the machine comes into play is fabrication and it's the delivery of the idea, um, so do you think the, um, the space for machine learning in architecture might perhaps be at the front end of the project, at the conception end? Also, yes, but not only. I've been showing you a lot of fabrication stuff. And you could say, well, this is all construction methods, but we're designers. The reason why, as designers, we moved to, this, to the back end is that, well, that's really where the shift, in my view, the shift actually happens. And if we have not looked at this in, an, in, in, let's say, in a way which makes sense in the digital age, you can change the front as much as you want with BIM and machine learning, etc. You will still have basically no meaning in the end, just shape or whatever, right? So we said, actually, first we need to find uh, a way to build in the digital age and see then how you would want to design in the digital age that relates, actually comes from the building. So my answer to you would be, if you understand how to build in the digital age, then you take your machine learning, not only on the back end, but actually to bring that information forward into a meaningful de design uh, phase and concept. That would be very interesting. Uh, now I would like to thank you again uh, for your wonderful lecture and also to thank uh, your team at 88 for supporting us and coordinating this event. Uh, and again, thank you to the Swiss Embassy for supporting uh, the organization of this event. Thank, thank you, very, you much. very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.